HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin is home to the nation's only master cheesemakers program that provides innovative cheesemakers with continuing education opportunities? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Food and travel, they go hand in hand. And chances are, if you're a fan of Heritage Radio Network, you love them both. Between April 10th and 24th, we have six incredible food and travel experiences up for auction at CharityBuzz.com. Go on an underground food tour of New Orleans with a rocket scientist. Get your hands on VIP passes to Feast Portland or enjoy a ranch to table experience in wine country. Four of the experiences include hotel stays at some of the most iconic properties across the country, including the newly reopened Hotel Claremont in Atlanta. Now's your chance to win the ultimate bourbon and beyond weekend in Lexington or take in a Latin food tour of New York's outer boroughs. You'll eat, drink, explore, and relax, all while supporting Heritage Radio Network. Help us keep the lights on and the mics hot. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash auction and bid now. Welcome to Food Without Borders. I'm your host, Sari Kamen. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network. Again, this is Food Without Borders. It's a show about food, politics, and identity. And today I am on the line with the lovely Yasmin Khan. She's the best-selling author. Of, she is a best-selling author. She's a campaigner and a cook. Her debut book, The Saffron Tales, explored her culinary adventures through Iran and was named by the New York Times as one of the best cookbooks of 2016. Her forthcoming book, Zaytun, celebrates stories and recipes from Palestinian communities. Prior to working in food, Yasmin was a human rights campaigner for a decade, running national and international campaigns for NGOs and grassroots groups. Hello, Yasmin. Hi, it's so lovely to be able to chat to you. Thanks for inviting me on. Thank you so much for being here. And we're so lucky that you happen to be in the States this moment, yeah? Because normally I you're do, in London. I'm so sorry I couldn't join you. I have to apologize in advance for any coughing and sniffling. 
I've um yeah, I've come down with a seasonal cold. <laughs> no, no apologies. Well, I mean I'm I'm sad also not to be sitting across the table from you feeding you pizza, but I'm still so thrilled oh. to be speaking to you on the phone today. So I so appreciate you you taking that time. And for a sick person, you sound quite wonderful, I have to say. I don't sound like that at all when I'm sick. So oh, you fake it you. you fake it well. <laughs> So I'm so happy I got to see you this past weekend at the Cherry Bomb Jubilee where you had, wow, quite quite the task um, of introducing Ruth Reichel and uh, I forget Ruth's, the other Ruth's name from the River Cafe in London, but you handled it so elegantly and I'm sure that you were shaking in your boots, but you did not seem to be nervous at all. Thank you. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to kind of be able to introduce two women that have inspired me immensely, you know, like Ruth Reichel in terms of her food writing just changed how I thought you could write about food. And Ruthie Rogers, you know, is another home cook. Um, What she's been able to do with just promoting kind of, you know, seasonal, delicious, uh, authentic Italian food um, with so much passion. I could just, yeah, it was it was a real privilege to to be sharing that stage with them. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it was it was a privilege just to even be in the room with them and so many of the other inspiring women who all gathered that day. So, wow, what yeah, a, what a fun, wonderful Did celebration! Yeah, I had an awesome time. I only wish that I could have stayed for the whole thing, but. Um, Oh, it's hard when you have a dog and you have to go home and walk no. your dog. <laughs> um, but the time that I spent there, I really enjoyed and got to see so many of my food heroes. And it was just really, really exciting. Um, but more more about you. So you are from London. You're born and raised there. But you have a really interesting background and upbringing. You have uh, an Iranian parent and a parent from Pakistan. So what was that like to be raised in that household but in London? Yeah, so, yeah, my mom's from Iran and my dad's from Pakistan. And I think um, as, as anyone who comes from, like, a mixed family heritage, you know, that, that both gives you uh, a lot of, lot of challenges in terms of, you know, not really ever fitting into one thing, um, but also gives you lots of benefits in that you have, you know, three different cultures that you get to pick and borrow from, Um and I think it's something that as I've grown older, I've come to appreciate even more because, um, you know, having three different cultural influences on my life has, has, has really enriched it, I think, and really affected kind of how I see the world, how I see people and how I see food. Yeah. Um, so tying into that perfectly, you wrote this article and it's, it's actually the, the piece that you wrote. It's called What Being Mixed Race Taught Me About Cultural Appropriation in Food. You wrote that for Chef's Feed um, a little while back, but I came across this piece and that's what actually um, introduced me to you and made me so excited and want, you know, made me reach out to you and so was hoping that you'd be able to do this show at some point. So I would love to just kind of kick off with a quote from this piece that you wrote. The food we ate in our home reflected the ethnically ambiguous space in which we existed. Authenticity had no seat at our kitchen table and we had little patience for it. Our family was a band of pleasure-seeking culinary pirates and took it upon ourselves to borrow, adapt, and integrate the culinary lessons we learned from from all of our influencing cultures. And I loved that. And I want to get back to this piece more later on in the show, but... um, 
authenticity had no seat at our kitchen table. I love that because I think people get so hung up on that term these days and are always kind of striving for it. And it feels like such a divisive and contentious concept. Um, what Can you just elaborate on what that meant within your household or that disregard sure. for it rather? Yeah, I mean, on a, on a broader, broader level, I don't, I don't actually think there's any such thing as authentic food or mm-hmm. an authentic recipe. I think, you know, I do a lot of my books uh, are about kind of traveling around places, um, getting inspired by recipes I learn on the ground. But actually, you know, as you travel from house to house in different communities, you'll find that every single home has got their own way of preparing something and nothing is more or less authentic. And I think that that's what it meant for us at home. So, you know, if we were making, like, my mom was making her uh, Persian, like, noodle soup called Osherishta, I mean, she just would put so much black pepper in it, and it would probably be a bit too spicy for, like, the Iranians that would come to visit. Or if we, you know, made a roast chicken, which is, like, a real classic British thing to have on a Sunday, we would stick some, like, lemons and saffron on it as it was roasting, kind of, so it has beautiful, glistening amber hue and has got those flavors the citrusy flavors that we were familiar with. And I think, you know, when I think about authenticity, I I understand why it's become such an important um, point for for writers of color or or chefs of color to talk about because, you know, certainly when we look at the economic realm around food or the media representation of food, you know, it it, it doesn't, you know... um, um, minority voices aren't reflected in the same way that their cuisines are. Um, but I think that's a totally different um, point or discussion mm-hmm. than an issue around authenticity. Um, you know, food is like a language. It's constantly evolving. And, and that's one of the things that makes it so great. Yeah. I mean, I'm just curious how the the confluence of all the different cultures that you were raised in and all the different tastes and foods. I mean, how did that kind of affect your identity growing up? And how did you see yourself like in the context of someone being raised by immigrant Middle Eastern parents, but born in London? And like, what did the rest of your community look like to you? Oh, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, I think, um, you know, I also think that, you know, I mean, I I didn't grow up in London. I grew up in kind of Birmingham, which is a couple Mm. of hours north. And then I moved back to London. So I kind of was born there, moved away and came back. Um, And I think the, you know, London's a very unique place. It's very multicultural. It's very diverse. It's a little kind of, you know, microcosm of the world. Um, And I think, you know, a bit like New York, a bit like L.A., these big kind of multi-ethnic cities, they give you a unique approach to identity because, you know, there's, there's so many of us interacting from all different backgrounds. Um, so I think it's just been quite fluid. I mean, I, I definitely think of myself as British, um, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I only have a British passport. Like, that's my only national identity. But then, you know, when things like Trump's travel ban, you know, the Muslim ban, like when that came in last year... Well, all of a sudden, I might be British, that might be my only passport, but my ability to kind of travel to the U.S. is, is you know, um, severely hampered. Actually, it was hampered under the Obama administration, where mm. anyone who traveled to Iran um, could no longer come on the British visa waiver program. So it's an interesting one, identity, because I think sometimes you can have your own identity, but because of your name or because of your parents' background, you're going to be judged by other people to be a certain way. And I think that's always the challenge. Um, 
Have you? Did you have any trouble coming to the states this past time? I mean, it's you know, it's hugely. Yeah, it's not easy anymore. You know, yeah. you you feel. I think you know all those communities that were targeted by the Muslim ban. There's, you know, even though it's out of the newspapers now, you know, having been singled out in that way, it, it gives you a certain a certain trauma, a certain sense of alienation. You know, I'm always sent off to the little interrogation room and, and mm. have to talk about you know the little side room as you go through. Um, and yeah, it's just um, it's a shame I think that we've got to this place in the world where we have you know, free market of capital, but we've, you know, um, we've got to the state where we're, we're becoming all over, you know, the globe, you know, the UK with Brexit and the US with its current policies, you know, so obsessed with issues around borders and identity. Um, it's not really going in a direction, I think, that's going to serve the world in the long run. No. Do you, um, do you feel discouraged? Like, do you feel like you maybe don't want to come anymore? No, not at all. Hmm. I mean, I'm, no, what I'm, I meant, I'm so, what I meant yeah. is that across the world, we're seeing a rise in nationalism. Oh, absolutely. And I'm just saying like, yeah. I, if I, I, it, it must no, be really I love frustrating. Like, yeah. I well, think it's such a great country. Yeah. It's so vibrant. It's so, you know, um, it's so I don't know, rich in, in all these different backgrounds. It's such, such beautiful nature. Like, no, I, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it's just I mean, it's no yeah. different to say when I travel to Israel and I get like, um, you know, detained for several hours. I just think we've got to this state in the world where, where you know, there's a lot of fear-mongering, which, which, yeah. Of course, but it's just such it hurtful, targeted policy that, you know, well, I think someone like me just kind of, um, you know, is, is certainly aware of, but can take for granted that I can, that I don't have to go to the interrogation room. And I, you know, just think about how that would feel. And I would be like, Fuck you! I'm not coming back here. Yeah, maybe, you know. I mean, I definitely felt that with. Um, so yeah, my for my first book, I traveled through Iran. Um, like, collect it's a cookbook, the saffron tales, and I collect like recipes and stories from people. And 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 definitely on that trip, I was very kind of you know worried about going in and out. But for my second book, which is about Palestinian food, I. You know, my, my, it's another cookbook, but it starts, you know, because my work is very much about kind of travel and, and realities. My, my cookbook starts with my detention at Tel Aviv Airport because mm. for so many people, you know, um, I think Tel Aviv now is seen as this big um, culinary, uh, you know, wonderful place. And I mean, there, it is a great place for good food, but only if you're a certain ethnicity, you know, right. for some people trying to get into Israel, it's very challenging. Um, so, yeah, I, I like to explore all this stuff. Um through food and through recipes because ultimately food gives us such a great entry point into trying to tell some of these stories. Yeah. How did your parents end up in the UK? My mom was studying for a PhD. Mm -hmm. So she came over to King's College and yeah, that's how it happened. And then the revolution happened in Iran and they decided to stay because it wasn't very safe. Right. Um, I read this little quip somewhere and some, when I was researching you about when your grandfather visited the UK for the first time, he brought with him a huge bag of rice because he was so worried that he wouldn't be able to find good rice in the UK. And I just, I loved that. And I loved the, the image of it. And, um, could you, could you speak to why, why rice is so culturally important? Cause it's like, it's so funny to think about like, you know, there's, there's certainly nothing from the United States. I couldn't, you know, go without yeah. for a few days. <laughs> or, I mean, I would, you know, I love it. Like I love going to other countries and 
leaving the, the United States behind. So I love thinking about that, you know, from your grandfather's perspective. Yeah. Oh, well, my family are rice farmers mm. in northern Iran. So when most people think of Iran, they might think of deserts or something. But around where we're from, it's kind of a beautiful green um, tea paddies, sorry, tea plantations and rice paddies. And um, so when you come from a rice growing community, it just becomes very important. And um, in Iran, like rice is the main grain and cooking rice is elevated to an art form. You know, there's like four different steps to it. Um, it's kind of then made with this beautiful, like, golden saffron crust, which is, like, the, the prized part of the rice. And, um, yeah, so, you know, many of our main stews are kind of served with, with rice. So, yeah, my granddad was such a foodie. I definitely got my <laughs> love of food from him. And, yeah, that story is a true one. He actually came to the U.K. with five kilos of rice, just in case the rice over there wasn't good enough. He's and, probably uh, we right. Laugh when we tell that story because, I mean, that's real dedication. Yeah, that's sweet. Um, so I know your background, you studied law and economics, and then you pivoted to human rights work. So uh, what was that transition like? And can you just tell me a little bit about the work that you did? Uh, it sounds like for over a, a decade in the human rights um, world, which you eventually left. But what kind of work were you doing? Yeah, so I've been involved in kind of grassroots activism for, I'm 37, for about 20 years now. Um, and I started off we're working a lot for um, kind of anti-racist campaigns. I worked for five years on supporting families who'd lost loved ones after police shootings mm. um, and deaths in custody, so deaths in prisons. Um, I've also worked for trade unions on like equality and employment. Um, and for the last few years when I was doing this kind of work, I was working for an international development charity, a nonprofit, working on conflict in the Middle East um, and human rights in the Middle East. And uh, I was very busy because there are very few human rights in the Middle East. Right. Um, uh, yeah, so that was my background, you know. So the, the I've always been into storytelling. That's always been a massive component of my work. And I really realized quite early on in my career that, you know, the, the, the way that we can create the most impact often is by sharing stories of human connection. And so that's what I try and do in my books, you know, share recipes along with the stories of the people I met on my travel. Right. So what made you turn to food next? What made me turn to food? Yeah. Well, I was on sabbatical from work and I was with my grandparents on their farm and I just spent my time over there for a few months kind of just collecting some family social history. Um, you know, sitting down with an aunt and kind of asking her to cook her favorite recipe and like asking her questions while I did it. And then I came back to, to the UK after that trip and all of a sudden so many of my friends were kind of asking me, you know, oh my goodness, you were in Iran for a few months. What was that like? And I was like, yeah, it was fine. You know, and then, <laughs> did you wear a burqa? Did you speak, do you speak Arabic? Did you eat lots of hummus? Like, real stereotypes that just yeah. didn't reflect anything in Iran. We don't speak Arabic. No one wears a burqa. No one eats hummus. And I realized that there was a huge gap that existed between the Iran I knew and loved and the Iran that most people thought of. Um, you know, when I think of Iran, I think of incredible pomegranates and kiwis and plums and the incredible fruit and vegetables that we have. You know, I think of stews cooked with kind of 
herbs and dried limes and lamb. Um, I think of beautiful rose water and pistachio ice creams flecked with like slabs of clotted cream. You know, mm. I have so many beautiful depictions of Iran, and I just thought actually maybe um, a cookbook that would be a, a way of, of offering a window into a place that most people will commonly associate with, you know, negative news headlines. Um, and, and, you know, trying to use food as a way of, of celebrating our commonality. Because, you know, in, in our current world context, I think we need that more than ever. Yeah. And you had been doing such intense work for so long. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Did you find the transition to be healing at all? It really was, yeah. That's a lovely question. Um, you know, I, I spent so long doing human rights work that was very intense. Um, and, you know, I enjoyed it and I was motivated by it. But um, there was something so wonderful to be able to take a step back, you know, and be nourished by mm -hmm. not only the food that I was cooking, but also the stories that I was sharing. You know, I just I see it as like culinary activism, but, you know, in a, in a more gentle form than what I was doing before. Yeah. I mean, I love the idea that, you know, you were working so hard for so long to try and repair the world and you could finally just take a, a breath and start, you know, ingesting memories and just really just nourishing flavors. I mean, all the foods that you just described are so vibrant and lovely. And I like, and I hope you know, that that was a, just a really peaceful and healthy, you know, experience for you to just kind of ah, let go a little bit. Um, so tell us about that process when you started, you, you headed out, you went back to Iran and, and started researching your book. Um, I know you've written a few times that you were armed with little more than a notebook <laughs> and a, a bottle of pomegranate molasses. You traveled more than three thousand kilometer, kilometers for several months. What was, what was the process like? What was the research like? How did you go seek out the people that you eventually interviewed for the cookbook? Oh God, you know, I just don't know. I can't even <laughs> look back on a period of your life and I'm like, how did we do that? You know, it was only yeah. so recently that it just seems like. Um, so, I mean, it, it seems even more extraordinary now I look back in, in terms of how we did it. Well, I worked with a local female photographer from Tehran called Sharzad Darafshev. Just met her, like, through friends of friends, through, like, social media. And we, we know we just kind of got a map, decided, like, okay, which are the main areas we want to go that we know are good for food and culture. And then we just kind of winged it a bit, you know, mm -hmm. like, who do we know that might know someone in that town? And, like, from that one person we'd get connected with, we'll be like, hey, do you know anyone who, like, knows how to cook something, like, great? Or can you recommend any good restaurants? And it was a real, like, mix of, like, having something set up in each place, but also having the flexibility to just follow on noses. You know, if we get a good tip about some incredible bakery, we'd just, like, jump in a car, head over there, and, you know, try and sample everything we could um, and it was wonderful we traveled from like the north of Iran Tabriz which is like a mountainous region where the food is like really influenced by like Georgia and Turkey and so they use like lots of dairy produce there lots of incredible like fresh figs um, and like sweet like juicy peaches um, it was really like gorgeous like food up there and then we went through the Caspian Sea region, where my family are from, where the food is really green, lots of 
fresh herbs, lots of cilantro and dill in stews, lots of fish. And um, their famous stew is this one called Fissinjun, which is made from ground walnuts and pomegranate molasses, like that you poach chicken in. Um, and yeah, and then we went through Tehran, which was the big kind of metropolitan, cosmopolitan city. Then down to the deserts of Shiraz and Isfahan, these ancient centers of Islamic art and culture. And right down to the south, to Bandar Abbas, which was an old spice trade kind of city, bringing spices from India to Venice. And the food in that region is really different, like lots of kind of Indian-influenced spices, um, lots of chilies and ginger. So, yeah, it was a real culinary adventure, and it was so wonderful to then be able to, like, learn all these recipes and then bring them home and adapt them to the kind of cooking that I like to do. Yeah, like, what was the most kind of surprising parts of your adventure? Because you had spent lots of time in Iran even before that previous to this journey because you had just been there with your family like what did you discover during that time that you hadn't known about Iran before yeah that's a great question um so I mean I've traveled back to Iran loads like all my life like we just go back and visit family like every few years but generally only to the north Mm. and so for me to go on this big trip the main thing I learned is just how culturally diverse Iran is and how diverse Iran is on so many levels you know like different regions will have different languages um, they'll have different um, obviously cuisines like the landscapes are so different I think it's so easy you know with with the Middle East in general you know just to depict everybody as as one homogenous group but there's such diversity in these countries um, and so that I think is something that struck me um, I just was blown away with how how much Iran changed every, you know, few hundred miles that you would go. Yeah. And then when you were writing Saffron Tales, like what, if there was sort of like a central theme you could distill, that a storyline that you wanted to convey, um, so you could kind of clarify to, to readers, like this is, this is Iran, like this is what I want you to take away from my book versus like what the media is telling you. What is that message you were trying to communicate? Well, you know, it's a really good question again, because every, <laughs> I would end my interview and with everybody I would speak to by saying, look, if there was one thing you could tell the world about Iran that they don't know already, what would it be? And like universally, the answer would be, we just want people to know that we're human beings, we're not terrorists. We're just ordinary human beings trying to like live our lives, and we have more in common. Like one, one, um, one of my interviewees, he was a filmmaker, Bezad Nalbandi from Tehran, and he said, you know, uh, the people in Iran and people in the West have got more in common than either sets of our governments would like us to believe. And that I think is the key thing. The takeaway from the book is that, um, you know. Looking at countries only through the prism of their political representatives doesn't give you a proper depiction of, of that place. Right. Um, I mean, imagine if, if everybody just thought the U.S. was, you know, what the current kind of administration is. Like, would that represent the diversity of, of, of values, of opinions of people in the USA? No. And I think it's the same in Iran. So I'm very much interested in kind of getting beyond media stereotypes, getting beyond depictions of government and just sharing stories of people. Yeah, I love that. Um, Yasmin, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our commercial sponsor today, but we'll be right back to talk more.
Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally anyway, anytime, anyplace. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Searchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satari's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth generation cheesemakers combine old world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Hey there, you're listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I have been in conversation with Yasmin Khan. She is the author of the best-selling cookbook, The Saffron Tales, Recipes from the Persian Kitchen, which is a gorgeous collection of recipes and stories from her travels in Iran. Um, I touched upon this article that you wrote for Chef's Feed a little while back, and I wanted to come back to it at this point in the interview because there's so many poignant things that you said and just read another quote um, if you'll indulge me. You said, chefs of color still struggle to get the same recognition as their white counterparts and this should be a source of frustration to many in the industry. I'm nothing short of delighted that today many immigrant recipes and ingredients are finally being mainstreamed and celebrated at the dining tables of all the biggest names in the food industry and in the food media at large, I just I just wish that more people of color were invited to share the meal. I mean, I just think you nailed it there, you know, and um, would love to hear from you why you think there's such a disconnect right now between really just fetishizing ethnic food and, you know, not, but not inviting the very people who have created the food and who come from the countries where this, you know, food is really being adulated from to to have a seat at the very table like what what is that about um i think it's about um i think it's it's you know a lot of it's about kind of a lack of of respect for people from those communities um as if almost you know the skills that we bring when we're kind of sharing our our cultural cuisine is just like well that's just you know that's just your home cooking it's Mm. it's not kind of you know elevated in some way and I think you know the food industry is a commercial industry where it's it's commercial interest rain and I think it's wonderful as I said in that in that quote that we have much more interest in diverse cuisines now um but you know if it's just the the same faces presenting them then we're kind of missing a trick do you think it's changing at all i do think it's changing yeah i think that um in the last you know in the last year certainly there has been you know more writers of color um uh working in different kind of food publications in different food media kind of more people 
therefore, have, I think I think it's opened up opportunities. Um, but I think some areas it, it's more progressive than others. I mean, I think in print or in in in, in, in writing, I should say, I think that that diversity is there more than say in broadcast media, um, which is still pretty, um, you know, especially the travel genre, and it's pretty kind of white male dominated. And I mean, even if we just think about like that, you know. Um, yeah, so so I think there's a long way to go. I think there's some, you know, great things coming up. I'm super excited about Sami Nusrat's new Netflix show. I think that's going to be great. You know, it's just going to be so great to have a, someone like her doing food. Um, but I think, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's a big gap. What about with restaurants? I mean, why are we not seeing any, well, probably very few, like, fine dining Middle Eastern restaurants yet? I mean, why does it have to be, like, a white chef who is serving that type of food in order for us to be willing to pay more? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I've had quite a few kind of chefs of color, you know, a few kind of friends of mine who are kind of... um, Black have said that it's it's harder to get investment. They feel for their mm-hmm. restaurants, um, uh, depending on your ethnicity. Like when you do, when there's been research done on who gets bank loans, who gets investors. Um, I mean, we live in a society where you know suddenly the your ethnic heritage does have an impact on 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 all of these economics, and, and I think that's that's a reason why you don't see as many high end establishments because it's just hard for people to raise the funds. Mm. Is it the same in the UK? Are you are you speaking to to both places, to the United States and to the UK right now? Um, I don't know. Actually, I know that certainly in the US, I feel it's more pronounced. I mean, yeah. the other thing is that we have a skewed idea, I think, about what makes kind of good quality food. Like, I mean, who says that something has to be like, I don't know, meticulously plated or very kind of fancy and expensive in order to be good like who says that's good um i mean i really like going into um like some of my favorite places to eat in london are places like tie-ups which is this incredible like punjabi um uh kind of pakistani food that's just very rough and ready and you know like it's, it's nothing fancy but the flavors are incredible like i think the what we've decided as a as a food media to call or a food industry to call good like good food like i think that is in itself a bit skewed you know um like why does something have to have all you know this kind of weird um hierarchy of of you know the white linen tablecloth places being the good places and then the hole in the wall places being not as good i mean yeah I i think it's i think the tough part is getting those places the same sort of media attention yeah. You know, I definitely agree. Like, there's thousands of amazing restaurants, like, out in our boroughs, but, you know, very few food critics are, are willing to travel and kind of shine a light. Like, I heard a food writer make the point recently, like, there's tons of immigrant chefs in New York and tons of women chefs. They're just in other boroughs. So, you know, yeah. it's not that we have, like, a lack of those chefs. We have a lack of media talking about those chefs, which I thought was a really, yeah. a really good point. Well, I, I was speaking to an, uh, someone here in New York last week, actually, about London and, and like the food scene there. And he uh, he was really interesting. So he's he's white, and he was saying, well, you know, the thing is, I think you should, you know, he's saying to me, <coughs> I think you should write something. About I think you should write something about London. And he was like, 
everyone says that, oh, you know, the London food scene is going through a real renaissance and it's really good now. And he's like, but I think London's always had a good food scene. It's just not always been, you know, the white restaurants. It's been like this rich immigrant community that London's always had. That if you went to their restaurants, the food's been great for 30 years. Yeah, yeah. They've always been there. Just no one's telling you about them. Yeah. Well, I hope that that certainly is shift. And I think it's shifting a little bit. Um, you have another book coming out. It's called Zaytun. Yeah, which is incredibly exciting. Can you tell us a little, give us a little sneak peek? Yeah, so I'm super excited about it. I've been working on it for a few years and it's out in the USA in February next year. So a little while away. Yeah. But um, yeah, so it's similar thread to Saffron, which is kind of recipes and stories. But this time I went through Israel, the West Bank and Gaza. Um collecting stories and sharing stories, I should say, um, uh, from the Palestinian kitchen. Hmm. And zaytun means uh, olive in Arabic and in Farsi, actually. And olives are like the main crop um, in that region. And, you know, as well as being, you know, a universal symbol of, of peace in terms of, you know, the olive branch, um, olives have also come to really represent or olive trees, kind of Palestinians' connections to the land. And so, yeah, it, it felt like quite important to have that in the title, both in terms of the food and the place. Yeah, there's a great restaurant in Brooklyn called Zaytun. Um, and I never knew what it meant. I just knew that I've been going there forever, but it's Z-A-Y-T-O-O-N. So I was wondering if it was the same, but I'm going to, I'm going to assume that it is. That's really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's fantastic. Congratulations. I am so excited for that one. Uh, tell us where we can follow you on the internet so we can make sure we know where to get the Saffron Tales and then also to get Zaytunes once it's published or once it's available in the U.S. Oh, lovely. You mm-hmm. can follow me on Yasmin Khan Stories on Instagram or Yasmin underscore Khan on Twitter. And yeah, I've always got lots of yummy updates and <laughs> yeah, just more of what we've talked about, really. A real kind of mixture of recipes one day, political commentary another, and incredible kind of travel stories. Perfect. Well, you know that I'm a fan of all those things and hopefully everyone no. listening is as well and that's why they're listening. Um, when do you head back to the UK? I head back tomorrow. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, thank you so much for making time to speak thank with me so today, Thank you for inviting me. I just think what you're doing is fantastic. And oh, man, it's mutual. And having is just so important. Thank you. Could not feel more strongly about the same sentiment to you. And I'm such a fan and really delighted and honored to be speaking to you. And I hope that you feel better and you have a very easy <laughs> flight you. and you get some rest. Um, safe travels back can't wait for your new book and thank you again everyone who's listening keep listening you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher and Heritage Radio Network we're done for the season but we will be back thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thank you.